back to get mad with Chris Graves. Sorry folks, we're starting a little late, but today I'm going to do a little tribute, a mini tribute to someone that I admired for a long time and I still do, the late Lane Staley of Alice in Chains, a band that was pretty instrumental when I was uh, growing up in uh, <laughs> my worldview. And uh, I have the first clip singer of the rock band Alice in Chains has been found dead in his Seattle home. The partially decomposed body of 34-year-old Lane Staley was discovered Friday night. Medical examiners identified it during an autopsy Saturday. Authorities have not yet released the cause of death. Seattle police say there were no signs of foul play and there was nothing suspicious. Alice in Chains was one of the most successful bands of the grunge rock era in the early 1990s. He uh, passed away after years of heroin abuse in April of 2002. Um, and the day that I heard about his passing uh, is like yesterday for me. Because um, a, a friend of mine and myself, uh, we were young enough and naive enough to think that we would be able to fly to Seattle <laughs> and go and find our our hero and uh, try to try to help him out. But I even wrote a screenplay based on that, that very gullible premise. And uh, I don't know. So yeah, I'm a big, a big fan. Uh, he was the singer for Allison Chains and he also was the singer for Mad Season. And uh, yeah, I have a, a second clip from MTV News. The rock world lost one of its more honest voices this weekend when Alice in Chains frontman Lane Staley was found dead in his Seattle home on Friday. He was 34. Seattle police say they responded to a call from one of Staley's relatives asking them to check on his well-being since he hadn't been seen in two weeks. Police then discovered a body later identified as Staley that had been deceased for at least a few days surrounded by intravenous drug paraphernalia. Exact time and cause of death are still being determined. Alice in Chains haven't been an active band in some years, yet they did surface for a session of MTV's Unplugged in 1996 in what would have been one of their final live performances. Staley's last contributions to the group were two new tracks, Get Born Again and Died, for their box set in 1999. The band's state of suspended animation helped fuel rumors of Staley's ill health and drug dependency. Though Alice in Chains' output had diminished, their memory lives on. Some 100 fans, as you can see here, gathered in Seattle on Saturday to honor the singer at a candlelight vigil. Staley is also remembered by his peers, such as Tom Morello, who had this to say about him, quote, I will always remember him as the bright, funny, and amazingly talented talented singer who got up there every hot summer day in a gorgeous suit and sang like an angry angel. We would laugh until we split our sides arguing about who was more metal. I hope he is now at peace. As for Staley's bandmates, they say they are proud to have known him as well. The surviving members of Alice in Chains say that Staley, quote, was a sweet man with a keen sense of humor and a deep sense of humanity. He was an amazing musician, an inspiration and comfort to so many. Meanwhile, Adima has added the Alice in Chains song Nutshell to their live set in tribute to the singer. While memorial plans remain to be announced, Staley's family requests that contributions be made in the singer's name to the East Side Recovery Center at the address, which is below. And every year, um, his mother, Nancy McCollum, has a, a tribute show for him uh, on his birthday, which uh, is August 22nd. And I've been in contact with, with Nancy uh, all these years. And even about 
you know, coming on the show and talking about laying for a little bit. But I'm still working on that. We'll see where that goes. I, I don't want to push her too much, you know. But the, uh, yeah, the concert is a charity concert every year, the annual Elaine Staley concert. And all the proceeds go to, uh, you know, addiction recovery and awareness and things like that. But yeah, yeah. When he was in, while he was in Alice in Chains, he had such so, so songs as Man in the Box, We Die Young, Sea of Sorrow. And that was on the first album. Um, facelift and the second album really kind of got them going and uh, shot them up uh, you know not shot them up that's very poor choice of words um basically got them to superstar status with the whole grunge grunge movement um when nirvana's never mind you know, got on the scene, was released in September of 1991. Around the same time, Alice was working on Dirt, uh, which a lot of people think is their best album, with such songs as Rooster and Them Bones and Down in a Hole and uh, Angry Chair, which is a very dark song. And... A lot of great stuff, and they, and they they always made me feel really good. And just hearing Lane's voice, like, gave me a jolt every time. It still does to this day. Uh, one of my favorite songs by them is "Wood," which was on um, Dirt, but they actually recorded it for the singles soundtrack, the Cameron Crowe movie from uh, 1992, in which they're actually featured as the the main band uh, during one of the one of the pivotal scenes in that film. And I guess uh, Cameron Crowe got to know the guys and, you know, Pearl Jam, a bunch of those. Those guys are in the movie too. Chris Cornell, he's on the soundtrack. Chris Cornell's actually in the movie as well. And even Tim Burton, director Tim Burton, has a role in the movie Singles. So, you know, that, that, was, a, that was a big deal too. Um, but yeah, Wood. Wood was a great, it's still a great song. That that song every time I hear that that like I said makes the hairs on my on my arms like stand up. But uh, I get a third clip here. It uh, should be Lane and Sean Sean Kenny the drummer. They talk about song meanings and man in the box. It's just writing about things feelings yeah. Not that we're dark or depressed, but just, it would be just as did. much as anyone else is, you know. Other bands choose to write about things they don't know shit about, like babes and cars, you know. It's parties and going out on a Saturday night and getting in a fight and all that bullshit, you know. It's kind of loosely based on media censorship, but only my theory. So it's not a fact or a statement. It's about zeal. Plus, I was really stoned when I wrote it, so <laughs> it meant something different then. Yeah. So they were pretty much the main uh, the main songwriter was primarily guitarist uh, Jerry Cantrell, who also uh, had provided vocals. Um, I got to meet Jerry at one point in 2001, and he threw a tennis ball at me. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a weird story. Outside of Lupo's Heartbreak Hotel in downtown Providence, Rhode Island, and that was. During um, the Anger Rising tour, it was like uh, 2000. Well, no, that was 2002. That was, so that was about a year later. The first time was in 2001. So Lane was still alive, very much alive. Um, and there was always a question. I, also, I had come, I had come across the news uh, years later that Taproot um, was looking to contribute, uh, not contribute, but to uh, work with Lane on some songs for their album. And even sent Lane some tapes for a song they titled Kevin Spacey, because it sounded to them very spacey, <laughs> very uh, out there. 
Um, so they just, as a holding title, they just called it Kevin Spacey. But there were also rumors that uh, Audio Slave was offered to Lane before Chris Cornell even by Tom Morello, who was a very, very good friend of Lane and actually had that had that comment that was in one of the clips about uh, sounding like an angry angel. And I ended up writing a song years ago called Voice of an Angry Angel. And that was all about Lane Staley. And um, another thing is uh, a lot of people might not be aware of, but the artwork, the, the Alice in Chains Sun logo is actually Lane's drawing. Yeah, he actually contributed to, uh, contributed, uh, I can't talk anymore. He actually contributed the artwork for his sideband, Mad Season. And, uh, you can see that all over. And, and, uh, let's, uh, let's go on. Uh, I have, uh, another clip where it's Jerry and Lane in 1993. Wow, Chuck. To be in the top ten right away was something we really didn't think was was going to be that accessible or, or that accepted. You know, it was really a shock. Well, by the end of Facelift, though, actually, I mean, yeah, I actually had some pretty good hopes for the album. You know, but but you know, definitely surpassed what we even thought. But just the, just for the fact alone that that Facelift did what it did. Even though it took a long time to do it, which was cool, you know, it was totally cool the way it happened. I figured all those people would be there, you know, I mean, the people who bought the album and didn't return it, which, you know, fortunately was not too many people. Um, I figured they'd be there for the next listen, you know. Mm-hmm. For the next listen, you know, and and they were, you know, so we expected that to happen, but boy, not not the fucking way it did. It's pretty cool. It's kind of kind of amazing sometimes, you know. It's like in three months we've done we've done what it took us like sixteen months to do last time. You know, it's it's pretty wild. It's a it's a set. You know, it's a, it's a space. People get different attitudes if, uh, about you if you are something in their head. You know, as far as like if you achieve something or you're looked at upon as being like you know this. I don't know this thing. I don't know. You know. People's perception of what you might, how you might have changed, you know, makes them react a certain way when they approach you. You know, before you know they've had a chance to see whether or not you've changed, they're just assuming you have, and so they you know, might come at you with a different different attitude, and that's sometimes awkward. Awkward, but it doesn't happen too often, really. Yeah, not too often. With people who are friends and who are close. His attitudes change, I think, you know, in relationship to how well a band does or whatever, you know, I mean, those are people usually you don't really know anyway. <laughs> you know, the people that really mean the most to you, your friends and your family and stuff, you know, they might be a little more, you know, they're more excited now than they were when you were playing in a band before and they're like, get a job, you know, <laughs> but, but, but still, you know, they're, they're always behind you and they're, they're, nobody's, you know, full of shit. You know, when somebody's full of shit and kissing your ass and that's something that we've never really been big on, you know, doing that to anybody or have it happen to us. I don't think it's affected us, you know, in the way of thinking that we're king shit or anything, you know. Or Definitely that not we're, that way. You know, I, I think of us as exactly, you know, the same guys as when we started, but, you know, here it's gonna, it's, it's just gonna be a little tougher because people are unfamiliar, but that's good. I mean, uh, you know, it, it gives us the incentive to go out and really bust our ass and work for it. Anyway, that was uh, Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell in 1993. Um, What I wanted to mention was they were handpicked to do the the uh, a track for the Last Action Hero soundtrack in 1993. They were handpicked by Arnold Schwarzenegger of all people, and he referred to them as those pugs from Seattle. I can't really do Schwarzenegger, but. Uh, yeah, what the hell have I? Uh, which is one of the first riffs on a guitar I ever learned to play. Um, classic stuff. I love that. But yeah, so they're uh, they're on that soundtrack, and that that's a pretty good soundtrack. It has uh, Anthrax on there, as well as uh, Megadeth, Angry Again, and uh, uh, Aerosmith's on there too. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff there. So. I also wanted to say earlier, and I... They also contributed a little bitter 
to that soundtrack. Little Bitter was the heavier of the two songs on uh, what the, on um, the Last Action Hero soundtrack, and mm-hmm. one of my favorites. Um, that's right. And they had the music video, and that's a classic. If you look at Lane, he's looking all uh, very uh, scary-like. And what I wanted to say earlier is uh, we were going to take some calls. If anybody wants to call and chime in on uh, the late Lane Staley, it's uh, 319-527-5016. Once again, it's 319-527-5016. And uh, I wanted to also mention that um, got a lot of ums here. Yeah, the I think the first album I actually bought of Alice in Chains was Jar of Flies, their EP, their more acoustic EP from 1993. It was kind of a, a logical extension from their first EP, Sap, um, from a few year, years prior to that. And the song Nutshell uh, really spoke to me, kind of like the song Wood, but I'd say even more. It's uh, it's one of the saddest songs, actually, and uh, I thought they used it very well in the show The Shield with Michael Chiklis at certain points when that character, Vic Mackey, was driving around. He's listening in the nutshell. And then I also found out that another guy that I look up to, uh, the late Dave McGowan, he was all about Alice in Chains and actually wrote about Lane's passing in 2002 on his website. Little side notes there. Um, you know, I'm nobody, Chris, but when uh, when I was putting together a documentary film on my little journey into alternative media, uh, yeah. it is also titled Nutshell. Uh, in tribute to wow. that song, I don't know if you knew that, but uh, I had no idea. I never heard that before. Yeah, it's a poor, that, poorly that available. Yeah, poorly edited documentary. It's out there on some of my video platforms. It needs a re-editing job and an update, real, real bad. But the project's name was uh, was always from the beginning, nutshell. So, because uh, I have, identifying with you? that song and everything. Yeah, I uh, yeah, it's one of my the my favorite songs like that I've ever heard mm-hmm. on the planet. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that really, I don't know. I can put that on. and I'll give uh, Jerry Cantrell some credit here. Uh, he actually, I really uh, was a big fan of not so much the Alice in Chains that exists today. And it's, you know, it's nothing against the new singer or anything like that. But it's just not the same for me. But uh, when Jerry put the, you know, Sean and Mike Inez and, and uh put the band back together so to speak they put out a, an album called black gives way to blue and uh that's the title track and that was written specifically about lane and his uh, final years and that that comes pretty close i think with a nutshell for me or mm. i it, almost like a compliments uh nutshell um, Quick little parting comment. Uh, yeah, know, I, yeah, I hope you're going to bring up another movie soundtrack they were in, which was really interesting, uh, where they show up on uh, a favorite movie of yours. And um, if not, that's fine. But also, you know, that singer that they have uh, does a workable job, does a fine job with the songs uh, mechanically. He's yeah. he's pretty good, and I used to uh, also when I used to audition for bands when Wood was a brand new song, uh, and people had just heard it. It was like, do you know any new songs from anybody? I would audition with the song Wood, uh, and I did a workable job of it. But here's the thing: uh, whether it's me or it's that new guy who is you know clearly a better singer than I ever was, and uh, post you know pre-surgery, I was not bad at it, but. Um, yeah, you know, it just it doesn't have the spirit. It's missing something. It's musically, mechanically about correct, but it's just it's missing that spirit. No, no matter what. And the guy's good. Make make no I've mistake. Met, he's I've, good. I've met the gentleman. He, he he's a nice guy. He's talented. Uh, right. His name's William Duvall, and he actually. He was playing in the op- he was the singer for the opening band when Jerry was doing his Boggy Depot tour and uh, the first leg of the Anger Rising tour, his second solo album. Uh, he was the lead singer, William of uh, Comes with the Fall. That was uh, Jerry's opening band, so I mm-hmm. think that's where they he met uh, William. You know, it's just 
there's only one Lane Staley, you know. That's right. and that's nothing. That's nothing against William Duvall. Very, like you said, yeah, very, very good singer, very talented singer. And Anger Rising, excellent album as well. It's my favorite of the solo pieces. That you know, the meant, pieces away from the meant, band. Yeah. Most of those songs was meant to be the next Alice in Chains album, and you can kind of tell. Yeah, that figures because that's exactly what it feels like to me as a, a continuation. Again, still missing the spirit, even though it's got a lot of it in it. It doesn't have the whole thing because it's missing. Late yeah. Stanley. Anyway, I'll shut up now and let you continue. No, no, no. I, I actually wanted to ask you um, if you're comfortable enough, uh, and you got the voice right now to uh, kind of tell everyone about your. You were actually on stage with with Alice and Chains at a certain point. Yeah, right? there was uh, when they came through, and and they were just transitioning from doing smaller venues and I think they had gotten if I remember right I think they got a job with uh, on Ozfest or something um, well yeah no they braved uh, a Slayer crowd nightly and uh, oh, that's what it was. Years, okay. it was Slayer and Megadeth and Anthrax they opened for it nightly well right. what, what they were doing uh, in that time period uh, again that was their, their upgraded job and then later they would wind up doing stadiums uh, briefly but the thing is uh, they were doing some local shows, and what they would do is show up under a different band name. And uh, they had done that in Jersey uh, at the Stone Pony, of all places. Uh, and somehow or other, they said, uh, let's invite some of the local singers up on the stage. And I just happened to be there. And uh, the song that they chose was... Um, was Sea of Sorrow <laughs> to give us background vocals on. Which, so. which don't really, it doesn't really, um, in my mind, doesn't really uh, lend itself to needing background vocals. No, I thought so too, but it, it was this weird version of it, and they were just, it sounded heavier to me, like it was detuned or something. And uh, that's the way it sounded. And I'm just up there with a bunch of guys. Uh, there was like three or four of us and, and uh, only one of the other guys I think I knew. And uh, somehow or other, we were just sort of picked out from being on the side of the stage where uh, there, there was an area near the Stone Pony stage that a lot of local musicians would sort of congregate. Um, kind of like the Snake Pit with Metallica, their fans? No, not the fans, but uh, like the local guys would be right there, which was near an exit door that was only used for uh, like matinee shows and stuff. And yeah. uh, the local guys knew about that because that's how we would get in for free. We didn't have to go through the ticketed area or anything. Uh, the bouncers would let us know. You know, you show up at this time, and we'll let you guys in because you guys help make us our money, so we let you in. You don't have to have a ticket. Um, so they would let us in, and also they would load equipment through that side door, uh, which we knew about. And, um, yeah, so it was just we happened to be there, and the next thing we were told is uh, by uh, by somebody who was working with Mike Inez is that uh, you local guys, if you want to come up and sing a song with the band, you can. So, of course, I went up. Yeah. And uh, it was Sea of Sorrow, which, again, was weird, but uh, a lot of fun. Um, did you have uh, a part? Did you have any kind of a parting glance towards uh, Mr. Staley on the stage at all? No, to be honest with you, we were we were over on the, um, like, stage left. So he was kind of uh, more to stage right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not in the center. Uh, he was, yeah, I forget who was in the center, actually. It might have been... Um, yeah, it might have been Jerry who was in the center. And yeah. he, he was over, like, on the other side of the stage. And they just, like, led us onto this, you know, literally like a three-foot-by-three-foot square area for five guys to stand in, you know. And uh, <laughs> and one microphone. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was kind of like just all of us sort of, you know, trying our best to sort of sing uh, with, with, a, with a spotlight coming over on us every now and then. And uh, I do remember Lane pointing at us. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, that yeah. kind of... That kind of thing. Yeah, he was, like, pointing at us, and I think it was meant to be a cue, but, you know, all of us had been drinking. I mean, it was not a planned deal, so it was just sort of like, <laughs> hey, just sing some background vocals. Okay. Cool. Well, I don't know if you remember, <laughs> you know, you hail from New Jersey, but yeah. they had that legendary uh, MTV remote um, from Action Park. I don't know if you remember that. I heard about it. 
Um, but I was I was really on the shore in Jersey, so I mean I was closer to the MTV Beach House and stuff like that. Oh, when they, okay. when they yeah. went to Seaside and when they went to um, they went to Belmar one year, I think. Um, you know, and, and I used I knew the security guys and all that, but I I never got involved with the bands. I mean, one time I was supposed to run into Corn on one of those, and I didn't get to do it. <laughs> uh, but other than that, I got to hear the security guys complain about those Jersey Shore morons and stuff. Uh, and you know, and and the complaint about how how many uh, uh, half used tubes of uh, uh, of herpes cream they had to clean out of the house after the guys left, <laughs> stuff like that. That's a little insider information they don't show you on MTV News. I no, assure you, no, that wasn't even on VH1. Not at all. Not at all. Not even on Behind the Blow. Anyways, um, yeah. So, I, what was your reaction when uh, you heard the news? Oh man, that was you know it it, it was like. In April, April is my birthday a month, and it seemed to me like every April we were losing musicians for some years. Yeah. And because uh, uh, Cobain was like, I think, the day of or the day after my birthday. Um, well, Wayne and, Co- and Wayne and uh, Kurt Cobain both died in the same day, April 5th, eight years apart. Yeah. yeah. Okay, was well. I see. I knew the announcement came like right around my birthday. The uh, announcement was like April twenty second because he unfortunately no, not Lane's is, announcement. I mean, no, Lane's. I know about Lane's announcement. That is one of the horrors okay. that I almost don't even like to mention because it's just yeah, it's absolutely yeah. pitiful, sad, and terrible. Yeah. Uh, You're talking about Kurt. Uh, he was yeah. announced on the eighth. Kurt was yeah, like literally. I was sleeping off being out from the night of my birthday, and I woke up to. Kurt Cobain's dead. Um, and uh, but uh, no, Lane. I heard about yeah weeks later, and it was he died. You know, around my birthday. But of course, he had unfortunately languished in his apartment because I'm very sure. By the way, and I want to say this just publicly that based on some inside knowledge, I'm certain. That he was not just discovered three weeks later. I'm certain somebody else knew. And I'm certain that more than one person knew, even if it was, um, quite frankly, a drug dealer. Somebody knew, and people didn't bother to give them the dignity of letting somebody take care of that. Um, that place was in terrible shape. I had visited it uh, that year. That year. I'll, I'll, I'll just say this, Chuck, um, to kind of back up what you're saying. For anyone out there, and to this day, I can't stand Dr. Drew. Um, Dr. Drew had a show called Celebrity Rehab, yeah. and they featured Mike Starr, the first uh, basis for Allison Chains. And Mike Starr has a moment. It's on YouTube. He has a moment where he talks to Nancy Lane's mother, and uh, basically it goes along the lines of what you're saying, that you know other people were possibly around you know, maybe even at the time, you know, or very shortly after. And Nancy has mentioned before that he's had a lot of stuff that was stolen from his uh, his, uh, his uh, condo in the U District uh, where yeah. his body was found. And I'm certain that that's I'm, I'm certain that that's true. I'm certain that people walked away with things, taking advantage of him. Number one, before he was dead. And number two, I, I'm, I would bet good money that if somebody discovered him dead and didn't want to report it, they might have helped themselves to some things during that time, too. I'm not saying yeah. who. I'm not yeah. saying I know directly. I'm not saying Mike Starr, by the way. I'm just saying if people watch that clip, you can decide for yourselves and, what, you, yeah. what you think of that. And, you know, and I'm not saying either that it's only one person. I, I'm saying that there are... A variety of possibilities of people that did some despicable things. So anyway, and there, were, yeah. there were. I want to just say, also add that there were some some decent people that were actually trying to get in there to try to help them at a certain point, and one of them was Chris Novoselic from Nirvana. Of all yeah. people, yeah. But you know, so, just like any other situation, you you can't help somebody who's not listening to you. So yeah. Or wants to open the door for you, you know? Right. Because uh, even Sean Kinney, the drummer of Alice in Chains, has mentioned that there were so many days that he just wanted to kick the door in and just drag Wayne out. But he knew he couldn't. Right. 
Yeah, you know, there's only so much you can do with a grown person that doesn't want to be helped. Let's just yeah. get rid of that. So, all right, I'll shut up now and let you get back well, to it. You want, yeah. you want to take just a little five-minute little break? Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com. Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com. Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State understood these trends professionally for many years and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge wallstreetwindow.com go there now go there now go there now the sonic entity Like history, real history that you were never taught in schools. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia. By author Mike Swanson, with new documentation never seen before that will open your eyes to events that led up to this. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 1961. Get your copy today at Amazon.com. Why? The Vietnam War by author Mike Swanson. You're listening to the Ocelli.com radio network. Ocelli.com. The views expressed by callers, tools, or anyone else who happens to get on the air at Ocelli.com do not necessarily reflect the views of Ocelli.com or Chuck Ocelli. And we are not responsible for any stupidity which might ensue. Thank you. Critical. The buying and selling of dope in this country may be the last message of free enterprise left. There's rumor, Sergeant, that the suspects might be armed and dangerous. Do you expect to see any violence here today? I certainly hope so. Sergeant, have you yourself smoked marijuana? Once. Go ahead, caller. Hey, I'm interested in the truth about the JFA assassination. Right. Well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim, Oswald girlfriend, she knew Ruby and Barry, cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now. Has a real effort on the JFA assassination book into her claims? Go to Amazon.com. Enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, <laughs> a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Barry Baker in her own words. Thank you for all the great information. The War State by Michael Swanson explains the great national transformation that took place and put the Kennedy presidency in the context of the times and reveals never-before-published information about the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy would not have been assassinated if he had been president 200 years ago. His assassination took place in the context of the Cold War and the rise of the national security state. Before World War II, the United States was a continental republic. In the decade that followed, it became an imperial superpower. Generals such as Curtis LeMay not only wanted to invade Cuba, but knew that there were short-range missiles on the island armed with nuclear warheads that they could not destroy because they were on mobile launchers. Their invasion could have led to a third world war, and they wanted to go to war anyway. The War State by Michael Swanson reveals why and will show you what President Kennedy was up against. For more information, thewarstate.com. You are listening to Get Mad with Chris Graves. Ocelli.com Revelation through conversation.
welcome back to Get Mad with yours truly. I am Chris Graves, and we're doing a, a little mini tribute to the late lead singer, former lead singer of Alice in Chains, Lane Staley. And we have a couple more clips to play. And also, I wanted to mention if anyone wants to call in and doesn't have, you know, you don't, we don't have to talk about, uh, you know, Lane or Alice in Chains or anything. If you just got something on your mind, you know, and shoot the breeze, it's 319-527-5016. And we have, uh, this is a clip of Jerry Cantrell a few months after Lane's passing in 2002 of April. Medication and sacrifice still to come on the program. Uh, we did that episode uh, about Lane Staley when he passed away, right? And a lot of people responded talking about how the death affected him. Well, it affected no one greater professionally and personally than Jerry Cantrell, who was his longtime bandmate and friend from Alice in Chains. So when Jerry came to Canada and played at Barry for Edge Fest up in Molson Park, uh, that was what was on his mind when Hannah Sung hooked up with Jerry Cantrell. pretty dark. They're pretty emotional. I don't know if dark is an understatement or not, but uh, at different times in your life, do your songs take on different meanings, or are they always kind of, do they take you back to that same original place? I think it, I think that uh, it changes for me all the time, and uh, you know, especially with the subject matter that we, uh, especially with Alice, uh, delved into it with Lane passing, you know, it takes on a whole new life. Alice in Chains songs today. Of course, of course. Do you do that all the time on the road? Yeah, well, that's a major part of my life, and uh, you know, it's something I'm very proud of. And uh, everybody certainly likes to hear the songs, and we love to play them. At a time when uh, you know, I'm saying goodbye to uh, my close close friend and uh, saying goodbye to my band, pretty much. Uh, at the same time, it's kind of a way to celebrate it. You know, celebrate what we did do and celebrate the life of Lane and, and uh, what we did together. So that's the way I look at it. It was a team, and uh, you know, I really miss him a lot. I love him. I miss him terribly. Is it sometimes difficult when people bring up questions? I mean, it's difficult for me to ask you even. It's it's hard to ask people in general, but then to ask for the camera and for the whole world to see, and, you know, it's very personal. Or does it feel good to kind of talk about it a lot? Well, I'm not a very vocal person, period, about personal personal matters, let's put it that way. I write songs about it, so, yeah, it's not comfortable. <laughs> That's what your music's about, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I like to say what I got to say there. I don't really... I'm a, I'm a rock musician, you know, and I'm not like a politician or you know, trying to make some big statement. I'm just trying to make decent music and make something that can last and that I'm happy with. And at the end of the day, that's really all I need to do. So that was Jerry Cantrell, um, Lane's bandmate um, and guitarist in Alice in Chains. And uh, I had a few other things I wanted to mention. Um... Lane's voice had a big effect on the music at the time, like in terms of singers and things like, you know, even if I don't like their bands or whatever, but it's, you know, bands like Godsmack and Creed, you know, the bands that were big at that moment, um, they took a page out of uh, Lane Staley's vocal, vocal uh, style, at least, and he, you know, Unfortunately, I, from what I remember, you know, nothing against um, nothing against Lisa Left Eye Lobes, I think her name was, from the uh, hip hop group uh, TLC. But when she died in a car accident, um, which is unfortunate, I'm not saying you know anything bad. All the news outlets, when it came to uh, music, you know, MTV and VH1 and everything. You know, Lane's passing was um, pretty uh, much swept under the rug. Um, unlike, you know, Lane's friend, uh, Kurt Cobain, eight years prior, you know, during the heyday of the grunge alternative alternative um, movement, even though if you ask any of those those guys in those bands, they, they, they could not stand that term grunge. And that was given to them by the media at the time. 
Quick, quick note on Godsmack, by the way, is that there's contradictory uh, evidence regarding the name of the band, because I know Godsmack as the name of an Alice in Chains song, and uh, the band's That's name... Right. The band's name, according to Merrill, this is a quote from uh, Vogue magazine. The band's name, according to Merrill, in the Smack This DVD, which is a home video release for Godsmack, uh, was taken from the Allison Chain song, quote, Godsmack. However, uh, Erna stated... Sully. In, yeah, Sully doesn't like to admit that. Yeah, Erna stated in a 1999 interview that I was making fun of somebody who had a cold sore on his lip, and the next day I had one myself, and somebody yeah. said, quote, it's a God smack. The name stuck. That's a quote from uh, Vogue magazine. So I just want to remember both know. quotes. Yeah. Robbie Morrell, uh, basis of God smack. Yeah, he was a little more forthcoming with that. <laughs> Sully, who I've met a few times, um, he's admitted in the year since that 1999 article that it was very much Lane, a combination of Lane, Staley, and James Hetfield of Metallica is what he based his vocal style on. What's funny is, I remember that band coming out, Godsmack, when it was brand new, and I heard it and immediately thought that it was actually what was an Alice in Jane's cover band that went by the same name. Early in the day, they were. (laughs) That's the ironic part. See, that's the funny thing, and I think there was more than one, because I think there was one on the East Coast and one on the West. You know, back in the 90s, uh, we didn't always register our band names and uh, I've been victim of this where I was in bands that have now you know somebody else registered the name 10 15 20 years later of a band name that I might have held in in the 90s uh, and I you know and I performed under and everything but we didn't copyright it we didn't trademark it so I thought well it's one of those Godsmack bands because it sounded to me like an Alice in Chains cover band decided to write some uh, some original material. Very much like there was a band in my area called um, uh, Fatal Array, which uh, which at a certain point, it was like a, a straight-up Pantera ripoff. I mean, it was all about... They, they were trying to be Cowboys from Hell Pantera. Wow. And the funny thing is that I got to open for Pantera on their last club tour. Um, and uh, it was, you know, in between uh, uh, Cowboys from Hell and Vulgar Display. And they were, again, another band on its way to upgrading. I run into them. Which is, which is funny because Alice in Chains toured, did some shows with Pantera during the time you're speaking of. Yeah, well, this is when I was highly active. And the funny part is it's at a club that doesn't exist anymore. It was right down the street from the Stone Pony. Here's the funny name, The Rock Horse. So the Rock Horse was a ripoff club down the street from the Stone Pony trying to cash in on the landmark status, right? And one of Pantera's last club shows, whether it's on their official website or not, I know for certain was there because I opened for them at that club. And uh, there was also an all-girl metal band there. Um, I can't remember the name of the band, but they, they were like popular regionally for a minute and uh, the funny thing is that band fatal ray was there the singer actually had that you know that big thick mohawk you know top of the head mohawk like phil had like a couple like a year before or whatever saw the guy in person phil had shaved his head by that point and uh now this guy two days later or whatever i ran into him in a guitar store and his head shaved right uh and that's before phil went to the uh you know the grizzly adams look with the big old you know bushy beard and everything a couple years later etc etc but phil was well known for being the hard guy in the walk video right with the bald head that's how he got famous famous but if you go back to look at cowboys from hell i'm telling you you might as well be looking at that band fatal array from jersey and i think later they changed their name to um position of power or fury of five or one of those band names anyway and they still no matter what they did sounded like pantera and we used to joke with them while they played and yelling at them hey play you know this pantera song or that they play walk man and play this love (laughs) and sometimes they would start to do it they would like begin to play cowboys from hell and say you know f you and stop um (laughs) And uh, yeah, (laughs) but there was but the point of this uh, little, you know, interlude into Jersey metal history is that I know that there was a band named Godsmack that played as a cover band and it was an Alice in Chains cover band. I don't know that it's the same one that became 
this other Probably band. not, because Sully Erner was the drummer of a band called Strip Mine in, in around that time period. Yeah, and there was more than one band named Strip Mine. Now, the funny thing is, like I said, the Seattle and New Jersey scene are actually connected in weird ways. Even if you go to Stone Temple Pilots, the D'Elia brothers, yep. uh, they're from uh, Point Pleasant, if I remember right, because they used to be around. There's there's a little amusement. There was a little amusement area in Point Pleasant where a lot of the Point Pleasant-based musicians would hang out, and I knew the D'Elia brothers from there before Stone Temple Pilots took off. Uh, so... And and that's years before that, because I think they moved to Seattle, and a couple of years later, boom, they were out and about. Uh, during that same yeah, time period, they, they were, were yeah. And they started as a Mighty Joe Young and Shirley Temple's Vagina, but with a P. There you go. During that very same time period, the music industry was recruiting and pulling people out of the Jersey scene in all ends. Even the band Morbid Angel had picked oh, yeah. up a guy named Eric Rattan, who was uh, one of the founding uh, members of a band called Ripping Corpse, which was a very popular Jersey-based, uh, Jersey Shore-based band, and uh, actually survives in part today as a band called Dimmock. Um, and that's like that band's been around probably 35 years, 40 years um, as a as a death metal band from wow. Jersey initially. And I think they've gotten members from other countries now and stuff. But initially it was uh, a handful of guys that we all knew that were older than us. And uh, we looked up to on the Jersey Shore scene as one of the great metal bands who played every metal fest. When every metal serious metal band came through, that was a heavy band. They got to open for them even when we had the death fest in Jersey and all that, and they were scheduled to play the very first Metal Fest in New Jersey in 1994. Which, was that uh, at the Count Basie Theater? It was, and that, and even though it's not, you know, it's funny, you go to the official uh, Jersey Metal Fest history page, it's not there, it's not listed, but I assure you it happened. Damage was done to the theater, and uh, I was in one of the headlining bands, because yeah. Ripping Corpse and Godspeed, another band that got famous for about half a minute, um, backing Bruce Dickinson on the uh, Black Sabbath tribute album uh, Nativity in Black uh, doing a song there that's Godsmack uh, not Godsmack Godspeed was signed by Atlantic Records briefly and that was during the same time like I said Eric Rattan was uh, recruited into Morbid Angel where you can see him in that God of Emptiness video that Beavis and Butthead parodied and, yeah. uh, and all that so they were pulling and recruiting people from Jersey at that point uh, I just wasn't one of them Funny thing, doesn't Allison Chain show up in the Kevin Smith universe? Um, yeah, in 1994 with Kevin Smith, uh, who, by the way, I was at the Count Basie <laughs> Theater for Kevin's uh, DVD, the filming of that, and I'm actually on camera. I almost got up to the microphone. I was two people away from uh, asking him a bunch of questions, and this is after I was already on his radar because I was doing interviews for com at the time, and uh, it was heartbreaking. I signed the release form and everything, me and my buddy Jay, and it was at the Count Basie Theater, and it's called a uh, Sold out a three a three evening with Kevin Smith in 2007. So I got a little history in that in that theater too. Didn't he return to that theater this past year or two? Oh, he does that every year. Yeah, for his birthday usually. Okay, yeah, I, I knew there was some celebration there because again, the Count Basie Theater is in Red Bank. It's right down the street from uh, Jay and Silent Bob's Secret Stash, I believe. Too. It's not far away. It's in that same area where you have those uh, uh, brick. Um, brick sidewalks where that are made up of you know like cobblestone looking uh, red brick yeah and uh it's interesting because that that theater is actually historic a lot of um famous comedians musicians a lot of people that are theater size you know not quite stadium size bands uh yeah. and uh performers of all sorts go through the count basie theater whether it be uh you know off-broadway plays or uh at, at certain points musicians comedians stand-up comedians george carlin had played there i'm fairly certain uh, in between his oh, times yeah. at the strand because he used to play the strand also and um very other, well-known theater yeah a lot of spots in jersey so yeah 
here's the thing. Uh, I, I know my Jersey stuff. Funny thing is, is that uh, that that '94 Metal Fest in Jersey was responsible for banning heavy metal from being played at the Count Basie Theater. All heavy metal bands were canceled for the next couple of years due to that Metal Fest. Which because someone uh, got uh, stabbed or something, right? Well, there was uh, somebody pulled a gun, uh, and there That's was funny. there was an attempt. The stabbing incident is actually at the Club Benet in uh, uh, that that was that. That's also at a Ripping Corp show, by the way. Um, but uh, no, there's, there's somebody had uh, threatened to uh, uh, shoot the uh, the bands, uh, wanted to attack us. Uh, some uh, ultra Christian, uh, uh, angry guy who thought that we were all the work of the devil, wanted Brothers to shoot us. <laughs> yeah, uh, they they definitely wanted to shoot us, and uh, so security handled it finally. Uh, but I went on stage exactly as the uh, as as the threat was emerging. And uh, was actually delayed from playing for a few minutes, but did not leave the stage, even though I was given the option to do so. <laughs> well, let's just look at that in retrospect. This is years before the murder of Dimebag Daryl on stage in Ohio. Not too um, long. That was not a common thing, usually. Usually, if anyone got hurt, it was at like a Slayer show where someone would get stabbed. Yeah, people knew that you were risking usually your... never guns. Uh, you know, that was more, I hate to say it, folks, but that was more of a rap show kind of thing. Guns usually... Gun. Yeah, guns usually came out at the at, at the club where there was dancing. Uh, right. You know, generally speaking, heavy metal shows were not violent except for injuries that were had in the mosh pit, which was voluntarily engaged in by, you know, people that were consenting. Usually you would help your fellow mosher up. Yeah. Most times we would pick each other up off the floor. We tried not to really hurt each other, but we would yeah. bang each other up a little bit. That was friendly. Uh, this was not. But like I said, it was heavy metal was banned briefly because of the damage done to the theater for uh, for an event that went all kinds of sideways. The pay-per-view didn't go. We were supposed to go. All kinds of things. And... Um, it's funny because uh, Megadeth and Black Sabbath, uh, Black Sabbath was uh, touring with that that last singer they had before they you know got them back to their senses and reunited with uh, with Dio and and then later reunited with Ozzy, but they were still working with Tony Martin and they were just a theater sized uh, venue sort of uh, act at that point. They were scheduled yeah. to play the Count Basie. It was canceled, and so was Megadeth and uh, people directly blamed uh, all of us who played on the Metal Fest <laughs> because. <laughs> it was damage from our show that uh, wow. they, they said something like $120,000 worth of damage in 1994, fairly Ooh. significant to the theater, which was a historic landmark. And uh, yeah. they were very angry. And really, it was all about the guy who owned the strip club, who got himself sued, had to change the name of his strip club and everything. He owned a place <laughs> called the Blue Dolphin in uh, Long Branch. Yeah, in Long Branch, New Jersey. It's right on the pier. Strip joint on the pier. And the kind of strip joint I'm talking about is where the girls wear bikinis and they flash you and you can still drink beer, uh, which is which used to be a common thing in Jersey. And I haven't been there in so long. I don't know if they're still there, but they were there for decades. And um, that guy practically got put out of business when he invested his money in the first New Jersey Metal Fest because everybody was suing him. Uh, and I was one of the bands who didn't get paid, et cetera, et cetera. And we didn't take anybody to court. We just said, oh, well, you know, uh, it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, we we got a, a whole happy uh, couple cases of beer out of the deal uh, to to bust our ass and uh, and do the metal fest on a big stage. And the uh, the only uh, the only note is that while they were clearing up and dealing with the guy with the gun, I was walking around the audience, reaching down into the orchestra pit and shaking hands with people, and acting like I was doing a uh, like a Sally Jesse Raphael uh, 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 kind of show. So, uh, audience members, what do you think? Uh, uh, I forget what it was. I don't know. Uh, lesbian clowns in outer space. Your thoughts? And I was pointing the microphone out there, uh, trying to be funny uh, while they delayed us playing for a few minutes so they could deal with the uh, the armed individual that they were trying to drag out of there that was uh, wanting to shoot us. So, yay yeah. Nazi Eskimos. Your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, right. That's that's the kind of thing I was doing. So your mother, Morton Downey, Morton Downey Jr. So you've discovered your mother is also your lover. You're disgusting. I don't have a cigarette, but hey, I could be Morton Downey the fifth. How you doing? He's uh, not the father. 
I was doing all this stuff, you know, uh, just just being a goofball. And uh, and I don't have a videotape. If anybody actually ever retained a videotape because it was recorded, if anybody knows where those videotapes exist, or the second show of Gigi Allen, uh, the second time he played at the Fast Lane in uh, in New Jersey, not from the hated video, but the second yeah. time he played in New Jersey, it was all recorded. They even recorded him bowling uh, at the Asbury Lanes next door. If somebody has either one of those tapes, I'm on them, and I would love a copy. Um, so, anyway, Isn't that film for MTV Brazil. Uh, no, that was a different thing. But the, okay. but uh, the, those videos were meant to be uh, home video releases, okay. and uh, never were. And in fact, the uh, New Jersey Metal Fest was supposed to be a pay per view event. You can, uh, if you dig in the newspaper archives, you can find the Asbury Park Press interviewing the head of the event about that and other band, yeah. uh, other guys who were willing to talk to them, who were appearing. Um, and uh, yeah, and and I was talking about well, there's supposed to be a pay per view event, but I don't have the information. It should be on your local cable and. Uh, it did not materialize, even though they they ran uh, TV commercials for it and everything. I don't have the TV commercial either. Uh, or, it reminds me of the uh, the Howard Stern New Year's Eve uh, pay per view yeah. special back in the day. It was kind of like that, except you know what? I did promotion for it on a, uh, a New Jersey only based TV show called Video Spotlight, um, which uh, which was filmed in the same studio that uh, the Uncle Floyd show was filmed. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the representative from my band, and uh, I was on there. They played a little video clip of us uh, from a previous show uh, and all that kind of stuff. And we were like, yeah, we got a pay-per-view event coming up, Count Basie Theater in January. I forget what the date was. It really sucked, though, because it was like right after Christmas. It, there was snow and ice on the ground. Everybody was broke. We only, you know, maybe filled half of the theater, and yeah. it really sucked. Uh, and then And then didn't get paid for it. Matter of fact, I was promised lunch. Mother F, and uh, I never got it. So, you know, I was promised lunch. I got a case of beer, but, you know, that wasn't quite enough to take care of me for the day. So, anyway. I understand. But to answer your question, yeah, uh, Kevin Smith put um, selected Alice in Chains for the Clerks soundtrack in 1994, uh, Got Me Wrong, which is featured in the movie when Randall shows up to, uh, finally shows up to RST Video. And that indeed is one of my favorite Alice in Chains songs, outside of Nutshell. Nutshell and oh, Got yeah. Me Wrong are two of my absolute favorites, although I must confess a, a guilty, very, I almost feel like it is uh, uh, Lane singing for me uh, on, uh, on, on two tracks. Uh, and they are both on the Dirt album. And I'm willing to bet with the last couple of minutes here, because I've almost got to get ready for my 8 o'clock show, Chris. That's right, yeah. Uh, I'm almost willing to bet you can't guess which two songs off of Dirt I would count as autobiographical for me. Sick Man? No. Angry Chair? Yes. Okay, that's one. And Godsmack is the other uh, Is the other one I was going to think. No. I was gonna, no, okay. Uh it's a hint. <laughs> sure, I'll, I'll just give it to you. Here it is. Down Look, in a hole. Uh, when a down in a hole is a excellence. Uh, every song on that album, by the way, is awesome. I, I are you, you going to say Iron Gland, where Tom Araya from Slayer goes, "I am Iron Gland." No, 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 no. Look, I, every song on that album, though, That's is perfect to me. To me too. Um, yep. So you know, I know it's uh, it's it's real common, and I'm not usually a trendy guy. And trends trends suggest that if you love Alice in Chains, you say that's their great album. Well, they it take is. it right into high gear right off the bat with damn, damn that damn that river. Yes, absolutely. Um, but no, to me, there there are three songs on that album that are absolutely oh, might as well be biographical. Can I have one more? Go ahead, Rooster. Rooster, I feel like, is a song for my father. Uh, that's a, what I thought. Yeah, in a way, right. spiritual. It's autobiographical. That's right. Yeah, it doesn't quite tell the story for me, but it tells it for him a bit, and I can hear and feel a lot of things off of that. But truthfully, you're not going to believe this. Dirt, it, dirt. The the song itself. Yeah. And angry well, chair. Sick, sick man, Godsmack, dirt. They all chair. fit. They all fit. Uh, yeah. But what I'm saying is those those two, and then you can put an asterisk next to Rooster, are, I feel, 
connected in my life as if Lane and I certainly, and I didn't get to know this at all, but it felt like Lane and I shared, uh, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a space somewhere spiritually because of those three songs. That's what I felt when I heard it. The song, the music does it also. It's not just his voice, the music, the, the way it's structured, the whole of those three songs. And again, I think every track on the album is absolutely perfect on its own, but those yeah. three songs speak to me in a way that only uh, my very favorite band in the world, Black Sabbath, does just a little more uh, in, in, in a way, in a vibe and all that. And if you ever, anybody who's ever asked me, even as a musician or whatever, even though Black Sabbath is my favorite band of all time, yeah. I would say that Alice in Chains in Truth is the most talented band I ever saw. Uh, and they are above even my favorite band in talent. But well, I, I'll tell you this. Uh, I remember Ozzy Osbourne was quoted as saying that the spiritual success, successor to Black Sabbath was Alice in Chains. And I can you know, admit that I, was around the time that they were opening for Ozzy in 1993 when uh, Wayne fell off. Uh, a four-wheeler and uh, had to get a cast and everything. <laughs> you know, that might have been the job they went and got, because I think Mike Inez might have been playing for Ozzy and Allison Chains at the same time. Yeah. Uh, that might have been the job I'm thinking of. You know, I didn't keep track of everybody else's business because I was busy doing my own. But... Uh, but it was uh, it was a, it's a relevant and great time period. I love it. I love the band. Uh, that's why I busted my ass to pull together these clips, and I'm responsible for us being delayed and a little bit of the messiness here because I tried like hell to. But pull I this sent you the clips way too late, and it, I was at appointments earlier. I should have done it earlier. If you so, you know if you got so more early. than well if you got more than two clips, you gotta send them to me earlier because it takes me time. I want to get them, test them, clean them up if I can, and that takes a little yeah. bit of time. I didn't have enough time today, so. I hope. No, I understand. It's, uh, it's yeah. both of us. I don't want to miss another show either. So, well, but I hope that everybody out there who listened to this uh, is cool with the idea that look, I did the best I could, and I hope it came off yeah. good enough. Because yeah. I don't want to do a bad job giving you know doing a tribute for the best. Yeah, and that's why I say best. mini tribute because uh, I'll do a proper one like in the future. Uh, Probably, I'm really, really trying to get Nancy to come on and talk about Lane, but I have to give her the questions beforehand and, and things, and I want to, I want to make sure that it's the right thing. You know what I mean? I want to put her on the spot and everything. So mm -hmm. that'll be more of a Lane tribute to actually have his mother on and talk about Lane and, and all that. Right, and I look forward to you bringing her on. I just want to note that uh, Mrs. O in the chat room, who is listed as Frankie's mom, uh, wanted to get this statement out, and I'm sure everybody needs to hear the. Obvious. Here it is. The harmony between Lane and Jerry will never be duplicated. That's, That's true. Because right. as we said before, the current singer can mechanically pull it off. You look at it on a meter. He's hitting the right notes. He certainly is. He's hitting the right notes. He's got the rhythm pretty much. He's got all of that. If you shut your eyes, it's not bad at all. But it's missing. It's just it's just missing the point somehow. It, it's like this, Chuck, and it's not not a great correlation, but it's like when uh, Chris Novoselic, Pat Smear, and Dave Grohl reunited Nirvana, and I say reunited with finger quotes, mm -hmm. and had Paul McCartney uh, singing. Right. Nothing against Paul McCartney, but he's not Kurt Cobain. Or when they did that Doors thing where they brought in all kinds of cool people, uh, some of them much more... Including Scott Weiland. Yeah, yeah much. And Scott Weiland's superior vocalist to Jim Morrison. No question. Oh, yeah. Oh, but yeah. problem is, it's not Jim Morrison. Just like with this guy who's singing for AIC right now. It's good. I listened to it. I was like, wow, this is actually pretty good. And then I went and I checked out him doing the old songs, and I said, well... Technically, musically, if you're looking at this just note for note, he's doing it. He's doing it. But he's not because he's just missing that spirit, that particular not song. Lane Staley. Yeah. He's just not Lane Staley. That's it. Well, a little uh, little side note before we uh, end this uh, mini tribute. Um, it's been said over the years that the whole entire reason that Lane wanted to start a band. You know, you didn't get to the Chris Cornell dream if you want to get to it real fast, okay? We can we can yeah, push we can push my time a little bit if you want to complete it. Just no, so. just take no, just take like that seconds or whatever.
It's been said that Lane wanted to become a famous musician so that his father would seek him out um, and see him on all the rock magazine covers and on TV and music videos and things like that. And it's been said that he got his, his wish. His father came back and found him. But all he wanted to do was to be his 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 drug pal, basically, and uh, that kind of hurt him. You know, that's uh, it's uh, some Lane Staley lore there. So, yeah, we got uh, the last clip here, Chuck, and uh, yeah, I'll shut up. All I can say is, like, you know, if you're in a dream and you're having that experience, it's as real as when you're not. Chris Cornell and Lane Staley, both front men of their respective bands. Chris Cornell with Soundgarden, Lane Staley with Alice in Chains. Both bands were huge during the grunge era. However, tragically now, both of these men have passed. Lane Staley in April of 2002 and Chris Cornell 15 years later in May of 2017. In this clip, Chris Cornell is talking about dreams and the afterlife and stuff like that. And Lane Staley's name is brought up about a dream that Cornell had had of the late Allison Chains lead singer. But you feel that Lane Staley is in a good place? I have no idea. But you said in one of your blogs that you saw him in a dream and you... I saw him in a dream and it felt like, you know, seeing him there, yeah, that like maybe he's in a good place. But I also felt like, is that, and I, I don't know if I say it in the blog or not, is that a projection? Uh, is that what I want to see? Or is that, um, you know, or is that what's really going on? And I've had that experience a lot with different people I know that have died where they appear in a dream and, and they're sort of the way that they were maybe at a time when, when I knew them and they were happy or peaceful or something like that or more healthy. Um, and I always sort of wake up with the feeling that, that, that somehow that's an indication that they are somewhere good, but I don't know. That was Chris Cornell talking about dreaming about Lane Staley. And uh, folks, if you want to check out a really cool song that is on the uh, their album Sap, it's their first EP that they did. Um, it's a song called Am I Inside, and that has uh, the vocals of Jerry Cantrell, Lane Staley, Mark Arm from from um, Mud Honey, and also Chris Cornell of Soundgarden. So I hope uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this, and uh, I'll talk to you soon.